you know, we have a tendency to read history backwards in a lot of ways. We know how conflicts start, how conflicts end, and they seem very neat and tidy after the fact, right? They have a beginning date, they have an end date. Um, but what we forget is at the time, all that you have is uncertainty, right? You don't know whether it's the beginning of the war or not. You only know that in hindsight. And you have no idea when or how the war will end, right? It's ultimately kind of up to Putin and what he wants to do. And how irrational do we think Putin is? I think, unfortunately, Putin's not going to be willing to, you know, go home with his tail between his legs. Right. And so that's going to, you know, expand the conflict. And I think he's willing to pay a long, heavy cost because he obviously doesn't care about Ukrainian lives, but he also doesn't care about the lives of his soldiers. Welcome back to Knowledge Brew Supreme, the show that percolates your creativity. And it is I, your host, Dr. John Chansey, back and better than ever. We are going to be doing things a little differently on today's show. You know, normally, I like to bring on a creative individual, you know, to chat about their creative outputs and their pursuits. But however, you know, something is happening in the world that I really think deserves our attention. And that is the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which at the time of this recording has been going on for over a month. And the first word in this podcast, the title of this podcast, Knowledge Brew Supreme, is knowledge. And Russia's invasion of Ukraine is by far one of the most important things happening globally. Um, I can't stop reading articles about this, listening to podcasts, and really just trying to stay informed on this topic. And so because of that, I wanted to bring someone on the show with expertise to talk about this subject to help us all learn about such a relevant topic. So my guest today is the one and only Dr. John Emery from the University of Oklahoma, my alma mater, Boomer Sooner. Wish we could be talking about all things, you know, Boomer Sooner today, um, but we're going to be talking about Ukraine. And his expertise on this subject is, is, is vast. You know, he is an assistant professor of international security in the Department of International and Area Studies uh, at the University of Oklahoma. His research focuses on issues of technology and international relations, ethics of war, security studies, nuclear war gaming, human machine interaction, and political theory. He is, the, he is a member of the 2021-2024 Center for Strategic and International Studies Project on Nuclear Issues, uh, and, and which brings together nuclear experts from technical policy, academic, and military backgrounds. He is the perfect guest about what is happening in Ukraine currently and what we might expect in the future. So with all that said, welcome to the show, Dr. Emery. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Just another uh, windy day in Oklahoma. So I'm doing okay, but the last 44 days have been pretty, pretty rough and intense and busy. Um, I hate being relevant uh, in the world. I'd much rather talk about historical cases, but such is the career path I chose. <laughs> well, thank you again for joining us. I'm so happy to be able to talk about this subject. 
Um, so let's get right into it. You know, this thing has been going on, like you said, for, you know, for 44 days and it doesn't look like things are, you know, it's not like it's going to magically stop tomorrow. So what is the current state of the Russian invasion of Ukraine? So how, how would you describe things as they currently stand? Is this conflict maybe still in the beginning? Are we somewhere in the middle or are we even any court where close to the end? Yeah, I think there's no real point in sugarcoating it. Things are pretty horrific. Right. And I think uh, especially the images that have been coming out of Bucha, especially kind yes. of underscore that. I think Russia, you know, they attempted a very quick regime change operation. Uh, thankfully, they failed at that um, from the capital city, Kiev. They were able to push back through Chernobyl and kind of up into Belarus. Um, so basically, they've cleared um, the area around the capital city. Um, but with that, we've seen the kind of remnants of what the Russian invasion has left with atrocities and war crimes in Bucha and other places. It looks like now uh, Russia is going to refocus their efforts on the eastern and coastal cities, especially of Mariupol, uh, that's been under siege for about 40 days now. Their mayor there has said that there have been about at least 5,000 casualties just in that city alone. So Russia is losing, but it doesn't mean that they've lost. I think Putin miscalculated kind of immensely in how easy the war would be for him. He thought that the response would be a divided European Union and divided NATO and, you know, a kind of division between the U.S. and some of our European allies. Um, but I think in the end, he's going to be refocusing his efforts on Mariupol to link um, Crimea, which they annexed in 2014, uh, to Donetsk and Luhansk, which were his original kind of... In intentions for invading. So it's hard to say where we're at in the conflict, um, but I think we're very much at the beginning. It's going to be a long war of attrition and brutality. And I think um, what we just saw today, right, the Russian strike on a train station in Kramatorsk um, that was evacuating civilians, killing 15, injuring 100 is just kind of more of what's going to, what we're going to see. We can't know what's going to happen until after the fact, but unfortunately, I think it's just the beginning of a long war. Yeah, and that, that is, you know, you're really unfortunate to hear. You, you might hear news, okay, they're evacuating the surrounding area of Kiev, and therefore, okay, maybe things are going in the better direction, but then you hear reports, like you said, of a train bombing, more escalation in, in East and Mariupol and, and those areas that are already occupied. Uh, definitely doesn't look like this um, is ending anytime soon. So a lot of coverage is, is happening about this war. I mean, you know, every news station is locked in, you have podcasts, you have articles coming out all the time. So there's a lot of information out there about this war. So I'm curious, from your opinion, what do you think some of maybe the general public's biggest misconceptions are about Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Is there something maybe the general public uh, that should know that they don't, or maybe something they know that, you know, man, but this isn't exactly what's even going on. Yeah, like you said, it's so hard because there's so much going on. So I think if I had to kind of break it down, I would say there are kind of four important things to talk about. So I'll go through each four and then kind of go into a little bit more detail. Sure. Um, a no-fly zone over Ukraine is not a viable option at this time for NATO. Um, I think secondly, the urge to do something militarily, especially from us, could risk escalating a wider war with more death and suffering. Sure. Um, third, Putin is weaponizing nuclear risk and threatening nuclear war, and that's something we should all be concerned about. And fourth, I think the arguments for NATO expansion um, that he's been making are kind of unfounded. So let's kind of take us through each one of those. Sure. 
so on the no-fly zone topic, we've heard a lot of discussion about that. Um, President uh, of Ukraine Zelensky has called for NATO to impose a no-fly zone, and you've even heard some U.S. members of Congress advocating for this. And I think people have a misconception about what a no-fly zone is, right? What that would entail is shooting down Russian aircraft that break the no-fly zone, right? So it's direct confrontation between the U.S. and Russia. And so that, so secondly, that urge to do something militarily, right? When we see these atrocities, of course, we have that urge to stop the killing as quickly as possible. But there's a real risk there that this could bring a wider war that could spill over into Europe that could, you know, escalate, unfortunately, to a nuclear war. Um, and so that's something that we always have to keep in the back of our mind. And so Putin has kind of dangerously weaponized nuclear risk, threatening nuclear war if the US or NATO intervenes in this conflict more than we have. And so we need to take that seriously as he's the largest possessor of nuclear weapons. And so I think this is important because it undercuts a kind of prominent understanding of nuclear deterrence that we have that um, you know, nuclear weapons bring stability, right? But what it's done instead has allowed Putin to wage a war of aggression right? And to use this threat uh, to commit atrocities. And so I think fourthly, there's been a lot of talk of NATO expansion. And this is kind of the classic security dilemma that I teach my students in international relations, right? And that is what you view as defense, your enemy views as offense, Yes. right? And so I think we have a tendency to view kind of expansion of NATO as kind of the U.S. imposing this on Eastern European and kind of moving up to Russia's borders. And that's how Putin wants us to see it. But in the end, I think we neglect the fact that the causality is a bit reversed there, right? These countries were begging to be a part of NATO because they feared Russian invasion. And because these countries are in NATO, it's keeping Putin out of places like Poland, the Baltics, Slovakia, all those things. So there's a lot to cover. Um, but I highly, highly recommend um, PBS Frontline documentaries. They're free online and on the PBS app. Um, and they just had a recent one, Putin's Road to War, that gives you a kind of great overview of his ideas and his career. So those are some good resources for your listeners. Thank you for sharing that. I'll, I'll throw that. Uh, I'll look for that and throw it in the show notes. Check it out myself. Always looking for, for more information, especially from good sources. So you, you kind of addressed my next question a little bit in your previous answer, but I do want to dig in a little bit deeper. So in your opinion, you know, should people outside of Ukraine be worried that this conflict escalates even further, potentially even starting World War III? You know, there, that was like, I feel like that word or those collection of words, World War, were thrown around yeah. so much lately. And so what I'm wondering is, how realistic is another world war or have we already reached that point? Maybe we just don't know it yet because I know we're not, you know, the United States and the rest of these governments aren't necessarily waging traditional war against Russia, yeah. but they certainly are waging economic war. So Absolutely. I'm curious on your perspective uh, where we're at and the potential of this escalating further. Yeah. So I think thankfully we're not yet at world war three. Um, and it seems less likely than it did a month ago, kind of at the beginning. Right. Sure. I think the fact that Russia has been losing so much and so greatly um, demonstrates that he would struggle a heck of a lot more against a war with NATO and the US. Right. Sure. So I think he's definitely recalculating and he didn't anticipate that there would be such kind of unity amongst 
NATO. He thought that he could very easily divide Germany since they were more dependent on his oil and gas. And um, that just hasn't happened. So we've kind of come together and waged unprecedented economic war against him, isolated Russia in a way that we didn't think was possible. Um, I think a lot of us were kind of surprised by a full invasion, the way that it happened, because in the past, you know, Russia has successfully waged what we call kind of gray zone tactics, right? So they did this in Georgia um, back in the late 2000s, where they still occupy a third of the country and undermine it politically and basically have control through some oligarchs in Georgia of the political system, right? So Russia controls it without actually militarily occupying it. So when he first came out and made these speeches, I thought that it was going to be kind of something very similar. He takes over these two contested regions in the east then slowly undermines from within. But I think the U.S. was has kind of been brilliant at making our intelligence public yes. to control the narrative, right? To undercut Putin's narrative that he's liberating these countries and said, you know, Putin's going to invade on this state. And then when we saw this full-scale invasion, um, it was kind of surprising. So I think we've done everything we can from, you know, these kind of economic sa sanctions. We're really helping when it comes to intelligence, sending weapons. We've spent, uh, sent $14 billion in military aid already to Ukraine. Um, humanitarian aid, accepting refugees fleeing, which has been a contentious point in sure. past conflicts, right? So I think Putin could very much easily one day decide to escalate either in Ukraine or possible invasion of a NATO country. But I view that at this time as like a very low probability. So I think we may have staved off World War III, but that doesn't necessarily help Ukrainians at this time. Sure, sure. So I want to go back to something you said, you know, you said we're not Obviously, we're not directly in the fight in terms of, you know, sending troops into Ukraine, setting up no-fly zone, anything like that. But we are engaging in economic warfare. We are funneling money or getting money directly to Ukrainians. We're getting weapons to them one way or another. I'm just curious, how does Russia not see that as acts? Like, I, I, I guess I, I see it. Okay, we're just helping out. That's just aid. But how do... How is that not, I guess, seen as, as kind of crossing the line and, and helping yeah. Ukraine in the sense, because we, we really are, but obviously not with troops, I guess. Is that the difference? Is it yeah. because it's not U.S. personnel there or? Yeah, well, we're kind of playing this fine line, right? And Putin has sure. declared that this is these economic sanctions are warfare against him, right? Sure. So he very much views it as war. Um, but it's not quite to that threshold where we're, you know, shooting down Russian planes, where we're directly engaged. So I think that would change his calculus. But at this time, I think he's more than happy to kind of regroup his troops since he's been suffering so many losses. You know, yes. numbers are so varied, but you can say safely say anywhere from at least 10 to 15,000 troops and at least six generals have been killed, which is unprecedented, like yes. in the history of warfare, let alone in 44 days. Right. right. So they're losing pretty immensely. And so I think he was taken off guard by that. So he's not anxious to bring NATO into the conflict in any way. Okay. Well, that's, that's slightly good to hear. Yeah. Um, another topic, I want to switch gears and talk about Putin himself, because I've, I've heard this comparison thrown around quite a bit. You know, Vladimir Putin is like the current Adolf Hitler. Like he's the, you know, the, the baddest of the bad guys on the planet. You know, we gotta, we gotta get, we've even heard Biden say, we gotta get rid of this guy, even if that was yeah. a bit tongue in cheek. So yeah. 
how fair are those comparisons of Russian President Vladimir Putin to Adolf Hitler? Is that hype? Is that just hyperbole, or is there some degree of truth to that? I think. I mean, also we need to take into consideration what we just saw in Bucha doesn't help his case at all. But how fair are those comparisons? Yeah. So I think I want to say that I think Hitler's war of aggression in Europe, genocide against the Jewish people, the gypsies, the disabled kind of stands unto a category like unto itself. Sure, right. Sure. And so I think the historical analogy isn't necessarily a useful comparison with what we're faced today with Russia and Vladimir Putin. And I talk about this a lot in my classes. Um, so kind of every, you know, when we talk about about the first Gulf War, you know, Saddam Hussein, George H.W. Bush said is, you know, Hitler revisited when he invaded Kuwait. Uh, similar things with um, the war on terror. And, um, you know, George W. Bush said, you know, the we're fighting Islamofascism, right? That this, this kind of historical analogy, because I think it's so much in the American consciousness, right? From the movies that we watch, World War II, Hitler is kind of the perfect embodiment of pure evil for us. Sure. And that's, kind of through popular culture, the war that we kind of understand, right? So I think we use that analogy kind of to the detriment of, you know, understanding the kind of historical significance of that context, because, you know, Putin is very much evil. He is waging a war of, of aggression. Um, and he is committing atrocities, war crimes, and indiscriminately killing civilians. And I don't think yet that the level of genocide has been met. So scholars of genocide are kind of debating this um, thing. There's, it's a very kind of specific legal definition that I won't bore your listeners with, but um, it's a very high bar to hit legally. So I think there's an apt analogy there that he is waging a war of aggression to conquer within Europe, which we haven't seen a lot of times. But I also perhaps somewhat naively think that he's going to stop at Ukraine. Right. And I may be proven wrong, but I don't think it's necessarily that war of expansion. And I don't think it's kind of mass execution and extermination on the scale that we saw then. So sure. um, just unfortunately, horrific war crimes and atrocities. Right. Yeah, yeah unfortunately. <laughs> and we recently heard, I believe it was, you know, uh, 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 President Vladimir Zelensky came out and, you know, and said this is genocide. You know, obviously, whether yeah. or not he's aware of what that definition is, I think, you know, um, those accusations are starting to be thrown around. And, and it kind of leads me into my next question. You know, the United States, specifically through President Joe Biden, you know, uh, declared that Russia, Vladimir Putin has engaged in war crimes. And we're seeing these photos, these awful photos and just details coming out of areas like Bucha and, and other parts of Ukraine are just terrifying. So what kind of an, a weight does an accusation like that carry? Can it actually be enforced in a meaningful way, calling somebody a war criminal or actually going forward with a, a, a proceeding of, of maybe a trial? I know that, that things are complicated because Russia is in the UN at, on the Security Council, but I think they were recently suspended from that. So I, I'm kind of curious yeah. where things are at now. Yeah, so they were suspended from the Human Rights Council. That's it. Okay. Um, That's so it. yeah, so it's more symbolic. There's kind of no way in the UN Charter for them to be suspended from the UN Security Council. So they do have veto power there. Sure. Um, war crimes are an important accusation, especially by the President of the United States, right? This is, um, this is an important kind of rhetorical move uh, that Biden made. Um, I think in the short term, the answer will be somewhat unsatisfying. It means that we'll be gathering evidence and testimonies and intelligence to eventually hold those responsible accountable for when the war is over. So to give you kind of a more 
recent example, right? The International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Um, that was a United Nations court of law that dealt with war crimes that took place, you know, in, for crimes in the Balkans during the 1990s. Um, and its mandate lasted from 1993 to 2017, right? So it's a long process, um, yeah. but it irreversibly changed the landscape of international humanitarian law, provided victims an opportunity to voice the horrors they witnessed and experienced. And it proved that those suspected of bearing the kind of greatest responsibility for atrocities committed during these conflicts are called to account and brought to justice, right? So what we've seen, especially as Russian troops have kind of been evacuating, and what we saw in Bucha is that, you know, Amnesty International has gathered testimony from eyewitnesses. We have satellite imagery of what happened and how long the kind of bodies were there. And, you know, in addition to the kind of execution style, Russian troops as they were leaving were leaving mines and kind of explosives um, for people even under the bodies so that oh, when God. people would go to gather the dead that they would be faced with mines. So the Ukrainian troops have kind of had to go through and demine these oh, areas. Um, but also German intelligence has intercepted phone calls of Rus Russian soldiers kind of bragging about what they had done there. So it's mm -hmm. a long process, right? But we're gathering all the evidence for these kind of eventual trials. I don't think it'll be easy and it may take, you know, decades, but, you know, there will be, there's no justice, but there will be some sort of accountability, I think, in the long run, but it's nothing in the short term. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, something to keep our eye on. So I want to switch gears more about kind of in your expertise, you know, you have a background in, in nuclear war gaming. So I want to use the kind of famous doomsday clock as a point of reference for this next yeah. question. Uh, where would you say we currently are on that clock? In, because given you know this invasion, has the probability of nuclear war increased with Russia's invasion of Ukraine? And if so, do you, you know maybe give a guess or a uh, you know yeah. prediction by how much? Uh, I always hate quantifying risk, right? Because either you're right or you're wrong. But either sure. way, it's bad when it comes to the doomsday clock. Um, so yeah, the famous doomsday clock um, is run by the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. And in January of, uh, of this year, uh, they set the clock at 100 minutes or 100 seconds to midnight. Wow. Right. So 100 seconds to midnight is where we viewed it. So they take that into account, like nuclear risk, kind of climate change, kind of all the things that represent a kind of existential threat uh, to the planet. And in that, they cited that we're getting safer because the U.S. and Russia extended their New START arms control agreement. We began strategic stability talks with them, um, that the United States would seek to enter the Iran nuclear deal. Um, so all those things have kind of gone out the window in the past <laughs> month and a half, yeah. right? So I would say we're closer about 80 or 60 seconds to midnight. Wow. So about one minute to midnight, rather wow. than closer to two minutes. Um, I think the threat of nuclear war is real. Um, and they've largely kept us out. I think we need to take those threats seriously. But, you know, at the beginning of the conflict, I had my students asking me, you know, are we going to engage in like, you know, Cold War mutually assured destruction? I don't see that as as a possibility at all. It's an extremely low probability. Um, I think there is a higher probability, maybe a 10% risk um, of Russia, if their backs are against the wall, maybe using a low yield nuclear weapon, either in, in theater in Ukraine or perhaps as a demonstration weapon, like over the Arctic to show their resolve. So at the Rand Corporation, which is kind of an independent think tank, especially for the military, 
Um, last year, I wargamed a, a Baltic crisis scenario where Russia, where Russia, with some military officials and um, nuclear advisors, um, sure. were civilians and academics, and Russia uh, launched in the game a demonstration nuclear weapon over the Arctic to show their resolve and basically tell us to keep out. And I'll tell you that even in that wargaming scenario, um, the escalation logics there are really powerful, wow. right? You want to respond how the US and NATO would respond to something like that is completely unknown. Would we just engage more conventionally? Would we respond with small nuclear weapons? Like those things are unknown. Yeah. Um, but I think I'm especially worried because the more tensions um, you have arising, the more probability you have of nuclear accidents or miscalculations, right? So it's not just the kind of rational or Putin's irrational launch of nuclear weapons that should worry us. It's more about the possibility of accidents. Wow. Um, and I could talk more about that later if we want to delve into nuclear accidents and things. Sure, <laughs> sure. So I'm curious, you kind of addressed this already, but in, you, in where things are right now, do you think if Russia were to use like you said, maybe a small tactical, you know, warhead in theater or as above, you know, um, Antarctica, like you said, yeah. do you think right now that would be the red line that like NATO or the U.S. couldn't ignore? Like we have, all right, we have to do something more than just economic sanctions or, or would that still kind of leave us where we're at now? Just not I think, doing yeah. at least militarily. Yeah, I think that would change our calculus. I think we would intervene militarily more strongly. I do not think we would respond with, with nuclear weapons. We'd be yeah. weary to escalate that. What we would do, I genuinely don't know. And that's, you know, <laughs> yeah, question for the military planners and for you know our commander in chief. So sure, it's, sure, it's there's no good answers, but we hope that we kind of never see that. But I think it should give us pause to rethink the kind of utility of nuclear weapons after this crisis, right? Yeah, we should move more toward uh, denuclearization as much as possible and getting our numbers of nuclear weapons down. And I think, you know, maybe one day when Putin is gone, that may be a possibility. You know, these things seemed impossible during the height of the Cold War. But, you know, we brought nuclear stockpiles down from tens of thousands to a few thousand. So, you know, anything's possible. Sure, sure. So I want to focus now kind of more on the general public, you know, here in America, why should Americans specifically be concerned about this war in Ukraine? Like I know there's, you know, there's the economic effects, of course, people are dealing with high gas prices. But what do you think are both the, both the direct and indirect effects that Americans will experience based on this conflict? Yeah, so it's, you know, it's difficult for us because we are on the other side kind of of the world. So I know a lot of my European students and friends and colleagues, they're kind of feeling it directly, sure. right? There's huge influxes of refugees. They're, you know, helping to house and clothe and kind of all these people, these women and children that are fleeing this conflict. Um, so in the U.S., we're feeling some of the direct economic effects, right? We're completely cutting off um, and sanctioning Russia, the Europeans are feeling this much more. They're much more dependent on Russian oil and gas. And so the move that the EU made yesterday to phase out um, uh, and have a Russian ban or a ban on Russian coal, I think is a really important move. And they're going to feel it economically, right? They're feeling it in a way that we're not. Um, one of my students said, um, you know, gas prices in from Slovakia, um, basically the equivalent of nine or ten dollars a gallon. Right. Oh so God. we're <laughs> so we're in a very different space <laughs> uh, than they are. So 
the Europeans are taking a huge economic hit here in the way that we're feeling it, but not as much as them. Sure. Um, and I think, you know, some of the some of the direct effects is that war is horrific. And this war of aggression is something that I think shocks our moral consciousness, right? And it's something that we absolutely can't stand for. And at least, you know, I'm willing to take some of that economic hit if it means that we can help the Ukrainian people kind of in any way possible. And so it's, it's more pronounced in Europe and we can't risk a wider war as much as we may want to do something more military, militarily. And so, you know, even though that risk of nuclear war is extremely low, right? I don't go to sleep, you know, I'm not stocking up on iodine pills or anything like that, or sure. you know, I don't think that we're going to be attacked in kind of a Cold War mutually assured destruction. Um, but I think it really should cause us to rethink um, the utility of nuclear weapons, you know, and I'm not alone with this. There was, you know, back in 2007, um, uh, Reagan's Secretary of State, George Schultz, um, former Department of Defense um, and Secretary of Defense under Clinton, uh, Bill Perry, Henry Kissinger, National Security Advisor to Nixon famously, and Sam Nunn, Senator from Georgia, um, all penned an article in the Wall Street Journal um, back in 2007 called A World Free of Nuclear Weapons, oh, right? Wow. So these people who are kind of, you know, kind of hardcore realists and, you know, have don't shy away from especially Kissinger, you know, from killing millions in Southeast Asia in the Vietnam War, right? Sure. Um, these people are saying we basically need to get to zero because those people on the inside see how dangerous kind of miscalculation is. And Bill Perry, especially um, in his memoir, My Journey to the Nuclear Brink, talked about a time in 1979 when he was awoken in the middle of the night by our NORAD commander and said the computers were showing 200 incoming Soviet missiles for the United States. And he thought to himself, you know, this is it. This is how it ends. Uh, but soon after, a watch officer sent him at ease and said it was a computer error. And he was calling Perry to figure out, not to wake the president, to, but to figure out as a technology expert um, if he had an explanation. <laughs> and a few days later, they figured out there was a low-tech answer. Someone had carelessly left a crisis simulation tape in the computer. Oh, my God. And he was talking about if this blunder had happened in the middle of a real uh, crisis with leaders in Moscow and Washington already on high alert, um, could it have been, you know, risk of all out nuclear war? Because with our intercontinental ballistic missiles, it's kind of use it or lose it. If you get those incoming Soviet or Russian now missiles, you have to launch your missiles. Otherwise, you can assume that they will be lost and targeted. And so sure. I think because all these people that were on the inside basically said like, the general public doesn't understand kind of nuclear risk, nuclear accidents and miscalculation in a way that they're pushing for kind of global zero. I think it's something we really need to take seriously after this conflict um, hopefully dies down soon. Is that a realistic goal in the sense that do you think that's something that could be accomplished in, in say our lifetime? You know, you never know. So last year, um, the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons uh, came into force uh, under international law. Of course, the nuclear weapons possessing states uh, don't acknowledge this treaty, right? <laughs> and such as international law, you kind of have to have wide agreement. But, you know, we banned chemical weapons, we banned biological weapons to, you know, a very high degree of success. Yeah. Um, so I think anything is possible and you have to imagine it possible. And I hope that we will learn the right lessons from this war, but I may not be kind of optimistic about the prospects of that. But I think 
we could move toward um, at least arms reduction, even if it's not towards um, global zero. Sure, sure. I think that'd be, you know, right up there with climate change. I think the yeah. two biggest existential threats facing us, if we could take care of those, you know, yeah. anything. Well, and it's like in my calculation of the doomsday clock as well, I think it was just a week or two ago, both uh, the Arctic and Antarctica recorded temperatures 30 degrees Celsius above normal yes. simultaneously, which is kind of unheard of. So that's, you know, <laughs> in addition to nuclear issues, that keeps me up at night. Sure, sure. So talked about this a lot now. So I'm curious from your perspective, and I think you've kind of hinted with some answers already, but I want to, you know, touch back on this again. Delve in, yeah. Yeah, as things stand right now in the conflict, 44 days in, who do you think is winning this war? Is there a win? Is anybody winning? I feel like yeah. we all kind of lose in this sense, but yeah. is anybody winning this war strategically speaking? So I think, I think our notions of victory and defeat are kind of somewhat skewed. And especially, you know, we like a notion of kind of all out quick and decisive victory, sure. right? Which if the last 20 years have taught us anything in our wars in the Middle East, it's that that day may never come. Um, I think militarily, like I said, Russia has had some outs like astounding blows. The Ukrainian military and civilian population have fought incredibly well and well above what any of us would have expected or predicted. Yes. Right. Like I said, the generals lost the number of um, uh, at least we've verified um, 2,500 Russian heavy armored tanks and things like that have been destroyed wow. um, through the in, like sending of Ukrainian soldiers of Javelin missiles and things like that. Um, we've seen videos, of course, on TikTok and other places of Russian helicopters and jets being shot down. So I think Russia is definitely losing the war and Russia is scrambling to get more troops, regroup in a way. Um, but I also think that, you know, there's no kind of definition of winning. I think Ukraine is or Russia is going to retrench in the east, probably eventually take Mariupol. Um, and that gives them the land bridge between Crimea and then can kind of push their offensive in their uh, so-called independent republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. So, and I don't think the Ukrainian military can necessarily focus all their efforts there because they still need to keep some resources around Kiev yes. as well. So I think it's going to be, even though Russia is performing poorly, um, they'll retrench They'll focus their efforts there. We'll continue to see kind of more horrific um, atrocities as they leave. You know, the UN has verified that it, um, the Russians have attacked at least 91 hospitals in Ukraine. Oh right. And so I think we forget sometimes, you know, we've been seeing kind of all these evacuations and the resettling of refugees, but, you know, men aren't allowed to leave. And yeah. so the kind of trauma of, you know, knowing that you're your husbands, your brothers, your fathers, your sons are back in Ukraine fighting, and there's still large, large civilian populace there. And we forget that daily life goes on, right? Babies are born in bomb shelters, kids are playing, and we tend to think of it oftentimes as, you know, just a war, sure. right? Whereas, you know, a lot of the Ukrainians are kind of trying to as much as possible um, have a sense of normalcy while trapped in the ravages of war. So, I don't think that there will be victory and defeat. Maybe once, if uh, Russia is able to kind of conquer this area, they may try and, um, you know, reach a peace agreement. And I don't know if the Ukrainians would or should accept it and what that will mean. But I think that will kind of change things because the war is so horrific. But, 
you know, what does victory mean um, in something like this? I don't think there is such a thing. Sure, sure. That's a really good segue into my next question, because we've, you know, we have been hearing, you know, talks about peace between Ukraine and Russia. They're, sometimes they're, you know, happening on these neutral sites, Turkey, places yeah. like that. And, and, and that suggests maybe there is a signal to a potential end to this war, which would be great. Um, yeah. But obviously, even during those peace talks, Russia is still shelling, they're still bombing, they're still invading Ukraine. So take those for what it's worth. What do you think, you know, what does quote unquote peace look like after Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Are they just going to kind of annex the re- the eastern portion of Ukraine, those those the regions they kind of yeah. uh, quote unquote liberated and, and leave Kiev alone? Or, or, or what, what does peace look like in this situation? Yeah, so I always say diplomacy is always good, right? You always need to keep the diplomatic channels open, no matter how improbable or impossible it seems. So it's always a good sign that we're engaged in kind of diplomacy, um, both the Ukrainians and the Russians and NATO as well in the US, right? So as the Russian troops retrench and they may kind of try and retake this, you know, Russia may recalculate and try and do, you know, what has been successful in the, in the past for them, which is annex a part of the country and then slowly try and undermine it. Um, from within. But I don't necessarily think that will be successful. I think Russia united Europe in a way that, you know, all the European, all the EU people couldn't have dreamed of sure. in years. They've un- and kind of entrenched, um, you know, US um, and European relations in a way that they hadn't imagined. And so what peace looks like or what diplomacy looks like after this, it's just so hard to tell because I don't think Zelensky will accept, you know, this large losing a large chunk of his country and whether he should and, you know, those things, I think it'll be an open discussion. And sure. um, but also, you know, because Russia has nuclear weapons in the end, you know, it changes the calculation. It's not just a conventional conflict where you can try and, you know, defeat someone militarily. And that's, you know, unfortunately, what nuclear weapons allows Putin to do is have a greater hand at the negotiating table than than he would just kind of with his conventional military. Sure. So I want to I want to ask a question just because I'm, I, it just came to me kind of during our interview. Yeah. Um, and I, I have such an expert here. I want to know your opinion. This isn't necessarily about Russia and Ukraine. Well, it is. It's indirect. But are there any corollaries, at least, or lessons or things that we should be weary about in terms of other diplomatic relations in terms of like China and Taiwan? Is there a chance that what we see happening in Russia and Ukraine also spreads, not their war spreads, but kind of that, that militarism spreads. Now you see maybe someone like China forcibly try to take Taiwan, perhaps we've, we've seen escalations of war games and things like Mm -hmm. that. Is there any chance maybe four months down the road, we're, we're talking about another war? So General Mark Milley the other day um, in his testimony to Congress basically said we have an increasing probability of great power competition and China still remains kind of one of the U.S. focuses. Um, I think China is learning a lot of lessons from this conflict, right? As we know, they have a one China policy and view Taiwan as part of their territory. And we, um, we continue to supply Taiwan with fighter jets and things like that to make, uh, to make, an invasion there prickly for China, right? To make it more difficult as much as possible. Um, and I think the lessons that China is learning is that, you know, conquering Taiwan would not be easy, right? As you start seeing the Ukrainians like 
having Molotov cocktails and taking out tanks, that it would be a much harder endeavor than they imagined. Um, because in kind of all the war game scenarios uh, that we play with kind of a China-Taiwan crisis, the U.S. is at a huge disadvantage, obviously. One, because China has a lot more interest in Taiwan than the U.S. does. And two, they're just geographically closer, have more assets, kind of all these things that would make it difficult. But I think what China is taking away from this more than anything, and that what's flying under the radar a little bit, is that they see an extremely weak Russia, right? They have been an alliance of convenience against Russia, um, or I mean, with Russia against the United States and the West. Um, but what they see a weakening Russia, they see an opportunity. Right? They see more opportunities to go further into Russia, to gain access to more of their resources, especially as they're you know, more and more dependent on China, as they're isolated from the West, right? that this is going to change kind of Chinese calculations. And so I think they're playing a bit more of a long game, and I don't think we'll see a Taiwan crisis anytime soon, um, but we may see kind of more Chinese incursions, so to speak, not necessarily militarily, but kind of economically into Russia and taking advantage of the situation. So, wow. you know, I think that's the kind of thing to look out for in the future. Sure, sure. Well, you, you mentioned early in the podcast, you talked about the PBS documentary about, you know, from Frontline talking about this issue. So I'm curious, are there any other good resources, listeners of Knowledge Brew Supreme could look to to stay informed on what's going on uh, with this crisis in, in Ukraine? Yeah, so I always tell my students, right, get as wide of a variety of sources as you can. Um, so everyone should read the Kiev Independent. Um, so that's some journalists uh, kind of left in, in Ukraine. Um, watch as kind of little commentary as you can, right, and try and get more news. So I tell my students, you know, watch everything from the BBC to France 24 to DW, which are all the kind of European English language channels to kind of get a sense of what's going on there. Al Jazeera has um, great kind of live coverage and reporting on the ground as well um, from within, within there. CNN's international coverage has been pretty good as well. But, you know, I think one of the benefits, I guess, of the Zoom era is that so many universities everywhere from kind of Stanford to Harvard there, and even OU, we brought together for a teach-in a few weeks back um, at the College of International Studies. You know, we had two teach-in panels, one with kind of Russia-Ukraine experts, and then one with security studies experts. So I'll send you those links to give to your listeners, but, you know, okay. take advantage of all these universities and people with expertise kind of talking through these things in a way that you can get um, that probably wouldn't have been as prevalent kind of before the pandemic. Sure, sure. So kind of wrapping things up, um, mm -hmm. what are your predictions for what this war might look like over the next few months? Any, any chance we see it end in the next few months? Any, any big changes you predict? Yeah, so I basically don't like to make predictions. Okay. Right? <laughs> I mean, maybe that's just the the good social scientist in me, but sure. I think we have a tendency to, you know, we have a tendency to read history backwards in a lot of ways. We know how conflicts start, how conflicts end, and they seem very neat and tidy after the fact, right? They have a beginning date, they have an end date. Um, but what we forget is at the time, all that you have is uncertainty, right? You don't know whether it's the beginning of the war or not. You only know that in hindsight. And you have no idea when or how the war will end, right? It's ultimately kind of up to Putin and what he wants to do. 
and how irrational do we think Putin is? I think, unfortunately, Putin's not going to be willing to, you know, go home with his tail between his legs. Right. And so that's going to, you know, expand the conflict. And I think he's willing to pay a long, heavy cost because he obviously doesn't care about Ukrainian lives, but he also doesn't care about the lives of his soldiers. And I think that's a kind of dangerous combination that he could wage a war of attrition for many, many years to come. Um, and what that looks like and what level we're allowed, kind of allowing that to take place is ultimately anyone's guess. But I don't think we have a good answer. But all we can do is just kind of more of the same right now and take it day by day and, you know, help the Ukrainian people as much as possible. Awesome. So I'm curious if people, listeners of the show, if they want to find more of your work, kind of keep it, keep up to date with, you know, uh, anything you're publishing or releasing or any information you have to share anywhere the listeners can go and find you. Yeah. So I have a, I have a website, uh, www.emeryjohnr.com. Um, and I'm sure you'll link to that in the podcast notes. So it has kind of all my recent podcasts, media appearances, and kind of some of the different work I've been doing on wargaming, drones, technology, and war, kind of all those fun, depressing things. Awesome. Well, I'll definitely include that in the show notes as well. Um, I'm curious, I ask this for everybody who comes on the show. Uh, is there anything you're watching or reading or listening to these days, maybe something non-war related to kind of get you through the the, these trying times, anything you'd recommend? Uh, yeah, so I guess it's technically war related, but I always turn back to novels kind of in times like this. And I've been rereading uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five. Oh, great, so, great stuff. Fantastic novel. It's one of those things you read in high school and then you kind of forget about. Um, <laughs> but it's really, really brilliant at illustrating the kind of horrors of war kind of mixed with a kind of sci-fi and temporality. Uh, that's quite interesting. Uh, one show that I've also been revisiting, it's on Netflix, it's called Occupied. It's a little bit too real. It's a Norwegian show. Um, that basically, the premise is um, the Green Party comes to power in Norway, and they want to cut off their oil from Europe. And then the European Union says, no, 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 the Russians will come and occupy your oil wells. And oh, they wow. slowly start to creep in and have more and more control over over Norwegian politics and resistance movements start to rise up. So that's very on point and a little too real, <laughs> but a fantastic series that I think has flown under the radar a little bit here, but I recommend it to my students of international relations. And unfortunately it's kind of very realistic now, but go back and read Kurt Vonnegut as always. Yes. I've got him on my, I've got that book on my shelf behind me. I'm probably going to have to dust it off. It's yeah. been a while. Uh, I'll check that out. I'll also check out occupied because it does sound, uh, it sounds really good. It sounds disturbing. Fantastic good. series. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Thank you for the recommendations. Um, that is going to wrap things up for today's show. Thank you again to Dr. John Emery from the University of Oklahoma, Boomer Sooner, for joining me today. This makes episode 23 of Knowledge Brew Supreme. We're, we're like Michael Jordan now, number 23. I'm your host, Dr. John Chansey. My goal is to eventually get to 100 episodes, so I'm only 77 away. Thank you for listening. This was such an informative, interesting podcast. Please share this with somebody you know, a friend, a family member, loved one, anybody who you know could benefit from listening to this. Uh, be good, be safe, and peace out. <laughs>